Right now in America, one in 10 people are currently in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. And of those, some 50 to 90% will relapse at some point in their lives. Because of the power of addiction, many of them may never regain their recovery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman. I'm an alcoholic with nearly three decades of sustained sobriety. If there's one thing I know about substance abuse recovery, it's that recovery is always a work in progress. Progressive recovery is a commitment to continuously moving forward every day to strengthen one's recovery. Recovery isn't just about learning how to not use. It's about the willingness to tackle the underlying issues that trigger using in the first place. Welcome to Progressive Recovery. People sharing stories from their daily fight for sobriety. Really pleased today with the upcoming conversation because we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, the 11th step as it's known in recovery. We've got Reese here, and what I'll tell you about her is she's got a story, but more importantly, I've had a chance to see Reese in action in her sobriety in recent times, and it's a thing to behold. But in order to appreciate that, you've got to hear the backstory and how she arrived here. So, Reese, welcome to Progressive Recovery. Thank you for having me, Ron. Appreciate it. So, tell us your story. What brings you? I was born to an alcoholic father and a very narcissistic mother. My early recollections are not of a very motherly mother. We were, my sister and I, farmed out a lot of the time to nannies and daycares and day camps and whatever church basements we could be relegated to. And very much aware that there was nobody home. I can't remember my mother uh, dating or being social, but I also can't remember my mother being around. And so about the age of eight, I found my way into the basement of the apartment we were living in and found somebody's beer. And at eight? At eight years old. And I remember to this day, the feeling that came over me was like a golden ray of sunshine, just one sip of alcohol. And up to that point, I was very aware that I didn't fit in. I was very obsessed with other people's opinion, other children's opinion of me, and very much in need of attention. I was obnoxiously trying to gain other people's attention claimed more than my fair share of attention, was always on every report card in elementary through middle school. I did not feel at home in my body. I did not feel at home at home. The only thing, the only time that I ever remember feeling okay was when I had alcohol in me. And so it wasn't so much uh, like it was today where it's talked about in schools and, and all of that. Back then, it was what everybody did. I lived very close to Berkeley, San Francisco, and we had hippies of every description hanging out in the park. And so it was very much the thing to do, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so I was very accepted 
in that community. And by the age of 12, I was drinking on a pretty regular basis. Not to black out, not to, you know, be social, but just because that's what everybody was doing. It was kind of part, it was like eating and breathing and dancing and flower power. It was a very beautiful time, actually. And then by the age of 13, I lost my virginity. And in a bet, it wasn't anything romantic, but it was just kind of one of the things that you do when you're drinking and drugging and hanging out in parks. And by the age of 16, um, just right when I turned 17, I was married. And by the age of 20, I had two DUIs, been married and divorced, had an abortion, and attempted suicide. All of those very major life-crushing events in and of themselves. But the beauty of that was that I was sentenced by a judge to recovery meetings. Okay, well, stop for a second. The beauty of that. I'm sure our listeners are wondering why there's a beauty in that. Well, I'm going to tell you about that. The way it goes is you have to attend so many 12-step meetings every week. And in my neck of the woods, we had a clubhouse, which is clubhouse. a 24-7 facility that's open, meetings around the clock with a ante room where they serve coffee and you can play cards and smoke cigarettes back then and you could just hang out. And so for me, it was quite tribal. It was like I had come home to a group of people that accepted me where I was, how I was, any time of the day or night, no matter what I'd done, I had a seat at the table and a roof over my head. So I felt very much like I belonged. However, I didn't understand what an alcoholic was, didn't identify myself as an alcoholic. But I went ahead and said I was an alcoholic because that guaranteed me a seat at that table. And for a very long time, I that's how I did recovery. I would be sober two, three, four months. I'd go out and drink. I'd be sober a year and something would happen and I would go out and drink. And I kind of managed my life between um, alcoholic escapades. And then along about 1987, I was on my second marriage. I had an 18-month-old and I was found at home by a lover, blacked out. And the 18-month-old was sitting up on top of the bathroom counter playing with cigarettes, had tobacco, loose tobacco everywhere. And at that point, I was given a choice to continue drinking and lose my son or keep my son and go into a rehab. And so I was checked into a 30-day facility. And it was definitely life-altering, got a lot of educational material about alcohol, about addiction, about how it affects you physically, mentally, spiritually. But what happened was after 30 days, I had to go home. Now, they did strongly suggest that we attend meetings, which I did. I got a sponsor. I worked through up to probably maybe step five, which is I had taken an inventory of everything that was wrong with me, shared that with another person. And that was about the, the extent of my work with the 12 steps. 
And then along about 90, early 90s, I, that uh, rehab trip cost me a marriage. I remarried. It cost you a marriage. It, Damn. The, the husband and I decided that we weren't well suited to mm. one another. And we separated uh, pretty am- amicably. We didn't have any hate or anything like that towards each other. No animosity. But he went on his way. I went on mine. And shortly thereafter, I was back in the in the dating game again. Quickly landed husband number three. And was going to stay in, um, in our home while he went off and served uh, our country. He was in the Navy. Uh, out of the country and decided that I would stay home and raise my son. By then I was pregnant with my second son while he went off and did his bidding and that was the way it was going to be. Didn't plan on getting married. So he went off to another country and I was there by myself, pregnant, very pregnant, trying to raise one, now expecting another and got the call that he couldn't handle life and so I went overseas and had another baby, and that was the early 90s. And all of this upheaval moving overseas, I was able to not have a sponsor, not go to meetings. And I just didn't have a really strong recovery. By the time I had been overseas for three years, I had accepted another job in yet another overseas location decided to leave that husband behind and went off to another country, had my two sons and met another man, husband number four. And still not a lot of meetings, not a lot of strong recovery, but I didn't drink. I was able to maintain abstinence, complete and total abstinence from alcohol. Came back to the States in 92 and that's where I worked and lived and went to meetings and had my children, had my husband, didn't really get back into the steps, but I definitely had a sponsor and was was going to meetings on a regular basis. Long about 2000 and right around 2000, 1999 to 2000, I got this idea that I should have a business and run a business out of my home while I was working full-time. And I got myself into a place where I was very, very sleep-deprived, not attending meetings. Absolutely, there was no time. And then um, 9-11 happened. And 9-11 absolutely brought me to my knees. And I was really thrown back on, on myself. And I had no tribe, no meetings, no sponsor, nothing to fall back on. And I decided that it would be okay if I took a drink. I decided that I would become a wine connoisseur. (laughs) (laughs) I even envisioned myself soaking the labels off of the wine bottles and putting them in a scrapbook and ranking them as if I was going to be the next uh, on Food Network. (laughs) So it was a very, very... I made it okay even after all those years of understanding that I cannot drink. And that was in 2003 that I actually put down alcohol for the last time. And right now I am in a period of 12 years of continuous sobriety. 
And even for the fir- these last 12 years, I would say the first 10 years, I was very much aware that I needed to not drink, but very, very difficult time with the higher power. I was very, very damaged from the uh, church, from the concept that I was bad, absolutely bad to the core, and that there was nothing I could do about that. But if I went to church enough, if I sang enough praises, if I did everything that everybody else was doing in church, that somehow God was going to let me in at some point, maybe in this life or maybe after this life. I tried valiantly to belong to a church. With everything in my power, I tried to fit into that Christian, sitting in the pews, doing service work, missionary work, singing praises, doing the prayers, all of that. I, I did the best of my ability. So in that time, let's let's talk a little bit about the 11th step for a second. The, our listeners don't know this, but it is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God. So I'm hearing you say you had a serious God problem, as we might have described, a big problem with the church and the damage. What was going on for you in that that 11th step work of prayer and meditation at that point? Why was it not serving you well? Or how was it serving you if it was? Well, I didn't have a hard time actually sitting in a sitting meditation or contemplative practice. But every time I got to the God, to the God part of trying, it was a, as if I was trying to measure up somehow. And I was very aware that my experience of my creator was very, very different than what the other people were talking about in the church, in in the rooms. And even in uh, the rooms, they talk about a higher power, God, as you understand God, but it's just kind of underneath it all but it's the god you know the christian god the god behind the bible god even though they say higher power it's really taken to mean that god and it even got so bad that i couldn't say the lord's prayer at the end of the meetings uh with so many meetings end with that i i didn't know who or what that was and i wanted to very badly be the good girl and be who they needed me to be or who I projected they needed me to be. But I was not that. I did not have a good experience of God from a very, very young age. No matter how hard I tried to make it into a power of my understanding, the whole concept of God and Jesus Christ on the cross, how they do in church today, I couldn't, I couldn't get there. So was that, you, you, you talked about the clubhouse being a tribe for you, some place to belong. So is it safe to assume from what you just said that this was a big bone of contention in some way between you and your tribe? I mean, they're all chattering the chatter and kind of feeling on the outs. Right. Very, very much so. It's as if you are at the table and you're witnessing a conversation and you understand what they're saying, but you seriously don't relate. But deep down inside, you know that if you don't relate, that you're going to be abandoned. You're going to be left alone. 
And for me, that was, I couldn't, I couldn't stand the idea of being separate and apart from yet another tribe. <clears throat> Honestly, Reese, it sounds really painful. So you're not drinking. You're doing everything you can. But I, like, as I watch and listen to you, I'm thinking, man, this sounds really painful at this point, even though you're not drinking and trying to do the deal. Actually, I believe it's more painful than the pain that you have when you're drinking. Because when you're drinking, none of that seems to matter. Somehow you go inside and you become your own higher power some way. And that seems to work, which is why so many of us do turn to alcohol, because we do um, alleviate the restless irritability, discontent that so many of us feel just by a single shot of alcohol. All of that melts like butter. So what happened then? You're, you're disconnected from your fellows at this point. The church deal's not working. The God thing's not working. You're not drinking, so you can't take the edge off, as they would say. So what changed? Because something changed. Well, it's funny you ask, because I just had a vision that it was as if I was walking the plank. At the end... <laughs> that's, that's a great visual. <laughs> at the end of the uh, the sharp end of somebody's very pointy sword, and I had to take a dive hmm. alone into an abyss that I had no idea how I was going to navigate. Didn't know if I was going to grow those wings and actually be able to fly. And for me, that was walking into a Shambhala center. Shambhala. Uh, Shambhala being a very, uh, uh, what would you say, not religious form of Buddhist studies. Uh-huh. It's a it's a place where you can meet, you study the teachings, you become a part of a sangha, sangha being like a tribe. Oh, a tribe. Okay, a Buddhist Shambhala tribe. Okay, very, good. There's very, your tribe. Very, and it was uh, come as you are, whoever you are, however you are. We all were welcomed at the table, and. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I suspected that I would lose a lot of people that were very important to me in my life, including my children, who are very, very fundamentally Christian. Okay, so Buddhism was like beyond the pale as far as your Christian relations were concerned. Hence walking the plank. Oh, God. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So it was very... Uh, that was the defining line for me was, was I going to continue to be restless, irritable, and discontent buying somebody else's idea of God? Or was I going to journey forth and find God? Who and what that was to me by myself, for myself. And it meant being alone for the very first time in my life. Alone. Alone, living alone being alone, accepting that I would be alone. I guess it might be useful to say that I've been through uh, four marriages mm -hmm. and I knew that that was not the answer, that having another man on the couch was not going to save me. I needed to find my way by myself. It was very, very evident to me. It was almost as if I had been primed 
for that moment in my life so that I could see on a very vast sea of experience that that did not work. So what was it exactly? So I get the track. What was it that Shambhala and Buddhism were, what is it they were offering you that sort of opened this space up for you? Because this is a, this is a step forward into a, a new level of spirituality, it sounds like. Absolutely, absolutely. What, what, did, what did it offer? Well, I think the most important thing was it didn't ask me to believe anything. Oh. They asked me to come in and take a seat and get still and find out what that stillness had to teach me. And in that stillness, when I got still enough for long enough, funny thing, what came bubbling to the surface was my own inner wisdom, my own inner teacher. And it was an amalgamation probably of everything I've ever read, every relationship I've ever been in, and maybe even what came up was what I came here to this planet to learn. All of a sudden, enough of the obstacles were cleared, enough of trying to hang on to others' ideas and opinions, where I was able in that space of stillness to allow myself to teach myself, if that makes any sense. It, it does, and what I'm struck by is the, the, the reverence that you use the phrase stillness with. What I heard was that that stillness, that experience, that work you were doing there that that's your meditation and prayer hmm. did i get that right very well said absolutely yeah. sought so, through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with god there. Which, which which turned out to not be out there but in you absolutely but you couldn't see it without the stillness could not see it without the stillness that's absolutely remarkable. it's changed my life fundamentally changed my life which is a cool thing. Absolutely. When we talked before, you mentioned something that clearly had a lot of meaning, and that's the three prajnas. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Exactly. As you've learned them. Would you like to frame those? Because it seemed like, as we were talking about it, they really gave a lens to this idea of a, a deepening practice of stillness or prayer and meditation. So what are the three prajnas? Right. And the three prajnas are, and, and I would invite anyone to Google that to get a better understanding. So I'm going to do it from a very simplistic, fundamentally, I'm um, just learning kind of a, of a viewpoint. It is a listening and learning, contemplation, and meditation. And prajna meaning our inner wisdom, our own very clear seeing. It is a wisdom that we are all born with. It's innate. We can't not have it. Every single person on this planet has it. But we are so driven to distraction by all of the things out there that we, we really miss it. We're looking for somebody else to teach us when we need to be sitting quiet so that we can see what we've got. And by, by listening and learning, that means reading, rereading, going to meetings, listening, meetings. any kind of 12-step meetings, sangha okay. meetings, any kind of way where they're teaching the Dharma. And, and the, the Dharma is? And the Dharma would be any, any uh, in, in recovery, in the 12-step circles, it would be the big book. Of AA's big book, AA's, the 12 steps. Right. 
in in uh, the Buddhist uh, terminology, it would be any of the Dharma books, any of the teachings of the Buddha. So any of the cognitive piece that you can pull from information, information coming in, and you and you do that over and over and over again. It's not something that you just pick up a book, like the big book, read the 164 pages where it tells you how to get sober, how they did it, and then you put the book on the shelf. You need to keep pulling the book, reading and rereading over and over. Actually, chewing is a better way, mm-hmm. chewing on the material. Sounds, sounds very much like you're, you're with the, the, treating it seriously as a course of study. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. so that's the... That's the first piece, the right. listening and learning. The first prajna? First prajna. Okay. The second would be um, contemplation. All right. Now, this is, where, this is where it gets tricky. So you take the teaching, any teaching, whatever you're working with at the time, maybe read a paragraph. Find out what jumps off that page and then sit in silence with that phrase or that sentence and maybe just read redo that in your head over and over and over again and find out where it resonates in you what it means to you and in that contemplation it begins to become a part of who you are you begin to see how it touches you specifically personally you make it your very very own do you, do you have an example of that i'm so what's what's a good example of something that would come out of learning from Buddhist writings and how you might contemplate that? Give us an example. One of, one of my biggest ones I'm working with right now is a quote from Shogam Trumpa Rinpoche, who was the founder of Shambhala. And it is, not knowing the energy of fear, we cannot become fearless. And that really intrigued me because I, I had no idea what he was talking about. But what it means to me now is that if I don't sit still when I am in fear, when fear or anxiety is activated in me and actually check it out, become curious about it, or as other teachers have said, cuddle up to it, if I can't really touch it, if I'm always running away from it, I really don't know what it is. So sitting still, yeah, you just clicked. Sitting still is to stop running. Absolutely. It's to, it's That's a good cuddle way. Cuddle up to, to come closer to yourself. To Quit looking outside. Quit going outside. But to sit with that little bit of a teaching, it opened up a whole world to me, to be able to sit with a teaching like that and see what it really means to me. I mean, it's obvious how many of us spend so much time every time fear is activated. It's like we just cut and run. We're out of there. We don't even want to know. What we, being, we being humans, not just human recovery. Okay. Absolute human condition. It's in the, in the very beginnings of our, of our time on this planet. I'm sure that was very necessary we might get eaten alive by a dinosaur or something. But <laughs> but now, you know, over time, we can actually be activated in a fear that would have brought us tremendous, tremendous pain, actually even maybe taken us over the edge. 
I, I can actually sit with that fear now and, and, and cuddle up to it. it <clears throat> so did, okay, so sitting with it, <clears throat> so that's the contemplative part. Is it more than just sitting with it? Uh, in a previous conversation that we've had here on Progressive Recovery, can you write about it? Can you talk to others about it? Is contemplation just sitting with the thought, or do these other things play into it? Absolutely, absolutely. Journaling is an absolute wonderful uh, meditation, contemplation, all rolled up into one. It's about, as a teacher of mine said once, letting your sand settle and your water clear. Mm. Just like those timers, uh, when you turn them up and, and the, the it's all muddy, you shake it mm-hmm. up. And then you turn it over, and eventually the sand goes to the bottom, and the water is very clear. And the only way that's possible is if we get we move into the stillness to discover the truth of who we are. So it's almost like you're getting information in. There's the first version of the listening and learning. And then you work with it, or you let it work with you, possibly, I guess. Mm-hmm. You're smiling. I must have <laughs> tripped into that one. So information in, you work with it. How long do you work with it, you say? Or how long does it work with you? <laughs> it's, it varies from, from day to day. I, uh, my rule of thumb is to actually roll out of the bed and get onto that cushion. First thing, cushion, be in a meditation, meditation cushion, cushion okay. or your chair. Or if you can manage to stay awake, you can lie down for a meditation contemplation. And it just is like a jump start to your day. It helps frame the day. Helps you remember who you are when you're coming out of that dream state between here and there. You can actually ground yourself in what it means to be you and what your intentions are for the day. Could you do this anytime? Because, again, another time we were talking to someone who said you can, you can do this anytime. I mean, you hit the reset button and Absolutely. set yourself down over tea in the afternoon and do this. That same, same deal? You can actually take it to the John. You can... <laughs> Space, huh? Sometimes at work it gets real dicey and we'll need to cut away and, and get into a bathroom mm. stall and remember who we are and what our life's about, lest we say something we might be sorry for later. Right. right. So so when does it move into meditation? Because that's the third prajna. Right. And meditation is very, very important. Um, guided meditation, walking meditation, running meditation washing the dishes, meditation, any place where you can sit or stand or be still within yourself, again, allowing the sand to settle, the water to clear. So if you're going to wash the dishes, wash the dishes. Don't be thinking about your shopping list, what's coming on Netflix, when the kids are coming home, just wash the dishes, kind of like that movie way back when, wax on wax off but be with the wax be with the dishes if you're sitting on your cushion in complete stillness be with your breath follow the breath on the inhale and on the exhale just follow the breath and be in that stillness so the three of these work in tandem going back to your example of the fear the actual one that you're working how do those three work in tandem? What is it that, that, where's the juice in that for you or for anybody else who's reading this? 
Wow, that's a good question. I guess the first part came by actually realizing the cognitive piece that I was triggered, that I was fearful. Had I not stopped to even look at that, I wouldn't even have known. It would have been part of my apparatus, part of just a regular routine, normal life. But I would be activated by something I had no idea was going on. So the first piece is awareness, half the battle, right? We've Mm -hmm. heard that. The second piece then in contemplating it is in making it personal, finding what it means to you. And then the third piece is settling with the idea of fear and understanding that um, we need to be still in order for the inner teacher to be activated. It's kind of like the inner teacher is that small, still voice we've heard, be still and know that's the only way you get to that level of a teacher is by being still enough to allow the, the teacher to, uh, to come to the surface. That's a beautiful sound experience. Mm. It's absolutely wonderful. So how, so I'm hearing that you are practicing at a whole nother level than seemingly you ever even knew was right. there. How's that made your recovery different for you? What's what's changed in you? Why does that matter? Wow. <laughs> I just I just posted your eyes, your eyes got really big, <laughs> I just posted yesterday on my Facebook that I am not who I thought I was. And I am definitely not who I'm going to be. And in that space, I guess, is the space that I play. And how it's transformed my life is that I can actually live and breathe and have my being in and of myself. I am not required to have any other relationship outside of myself in that cushion. And coming from that space, I can then engage others and the world at large as a very whole very grounded, very open human being. So now I choose to have relationships. They don't choose to have me. I don't get lost in another. I now know exactly where I am and where the other is. And if I get confused, <laughs> I have a few good people that I can call and, and ask for guidance. But it's a very different uh, prayer and meditation sought through prayer and meditation in the old days, it was, you know, Dr. Bob and Bill W., the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, who would be sitting at that old kitchen table with that old percolator that you made coffee with on the stove, having their cup of coffee, reading uh, his utmost from your highest or your highest from his utmost. And it was very particular. This is how you do it. And this Mm -hmm. is the only way you do it. I finally after more than 30 years of being around the 12 steps, got to that place of finding my higher power. So I can see from the look on your face that that's really meaningful. Very meaningful. Why? Because I can operate. I can be a fully functional human being, not dependent on people, places, and things to make me okay. I'm reminded of another conversation, another 
where somebody used a phrase from the We Agnostic section of the group here, where they said, deep down within the side, with inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It is there and you can find it or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Could have never found that for me. Trying to take on somebody else's version of God. I think there's actually a story in the Bible that talks about uh, David and Goliath and King Saul wanted him to have his armor and it it just absolutely did not fit. Didn't work. I was given permission, I see that, all along to have my own idea. But in my mind, I thought it meant my own idea of your version of God. And so it's only been really recently that I haven't been, that I've been able to even say the word God. Because to me, it just raised the hackles. Or Jesus, that the hair on the back of my neck would just absolutely stand on end. It was so repulsive to me. And I'm so very grateful for teachers like Richard Rohr. And he does a talk on Jesus and Buddha, the path to awakening, where he was a Christian. He is a Christian, very well thought of Catholic priest in the Franciscan order talking about a concept of a God that I could finally understand, talking about a Christ that I could relate to. It's revolutionized my recovery. So, you know, it's ironic that mm. you're, you're quoting scripture, right? Christian <laughs> scripture, <laughs> despite, despite a, a, a obviously painful history there. And yet you're some kind of a Buddhist. Very, very, very much identify myself as a Buddhist. I would not hide that from anywhere. So it's ironic that you're a Buddhist who's quoting Christian scripture, isn't it? I have to tell you that being a Buddhist makes me a better Christian. Some of our listeners may need you to say a smidge more about that. Well, in the Bible and in church, it all everywhere talks about forgiving your brother. And in the real world, we, we hear people talking about, yeah, I forgive you. But on a deep level, we don't really get that. Many of us really don't get that. Many of the Christian teachings are wonderful, but in practicality, we don't really see people walking that out when they're cutting people off in traffic as they're leaving Sunday church service. Beautiful sermons, beautiful pastors, beautiful teachers in the church. I absolutely love good teaching. But actually taking it home and wearing it and making it a part of who you are, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. Much of humanity has been a, has been a hypocrite for me. I knew who and what I was, and I knew that I wasn't perfect. And I knew when I walked out of church, I screwed up and screwed up over and over again. I saw other people do the same thing, but then hide under the, the cloak of Christianity saying, I'm forgiven. You know, I go to church. It's like they were going to church to check off a block. You know, I've got, got my God on and check. So being a Buddhist invited me 
or following. Actually, it's not really following. It's just hearing the teachings and then taking them to the cushion through contemplation taught me how to actually embody the beautiful things I learned in Christianity and the beautiful things I learned in Buddhism. So I took them on and chewed them up and spit them out and they become how I walk in my daily life. Big difference. So the word that comes to mind is it sounds like you've been transformed by this path of yours. There's no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. I am not the same person <laughs> that was sitting here even a year ago. It took a lot of courage on my part to be able to say that I had to cut and run because it was killing me. And it was either find a God of my understanding that I could do business with or continue to try and morph and be that chameleon that fit into everybody else's idea of what it meant to have a God of your understanding. Reese, congratulations on your sobriety. It's a, it's a neat thing to see you wearing today. Thanks for joining in this episode of Progressive Recovery, which is available at progressiverecovery.org as well as on iTunes.